0: Tonight, I want to I want to talk about something a bit different. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Michael Miller. Uh, everybody here calls me Hats. Uh, so I'm the the campus pastor up here at Upper Room uh, Frisco. Um, now, I want to dive into the message, but before I do, I need to give you a little backdrop on on where I've come from. So I was born into a, a I had a Jewish mother and a Mormon father. That's weird as that sounds. Uh, and I became a Christian when I was about 15 years old. Uh, I didn't really know what that meant. I remember they, I went to Pine Cove, and, and they gave me the opportunity to give my life to Christ, uh, but I, didn't, I, I sincerely couldn't have told you what I was doing at that moment. I came back from that church camp. I prayed for a little bit for a girlfriend. I prayed for money, and when I didn't get either of those things, I kind of stopped praying, and, <laughs> And that was until someone gave me a Bible. Now, I had never read a Bible in my life. I didn't know what a Bible was. Uh, I I literally, if you had asked me at that point in time, I would have told you that it was a book of spells and ancient secrets. And so suddenly, I've got my hands on one of these mystical books, and I'm terrified of what my family would think. So I, I used to hide it in my desk, and then when everybody else would go to bed, I'd get it out and I'd start reading it. And, uh, I mean, that was really when my walk with Christ began. I would read Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, all about, you know, the, the way that Jesus lived and what he taught his disciples, the way to live themselves. And, and I just wanted to be like him. Uh, you know, we talk about how many times should you forgive your brother? And he's like, seven times. And Jesus is like, no, as many times as you're offended. Now, for me, that was new information, I didn't know that you were supposed to forgive people, that this was a way you could actually live life. And so I just wanted to be like him. And so I actually had to start um, to to, to learn more about this and make sense of everything that I had begun to to give my life to. Uh, I would lie to my mom so I could go to church on on Sunday mornings. Uh, I would spend the night at my friend's house because I knew that this particular group of friends went to church on Sundays. So every Saturday night, that's where I was staying. And uh, it was there that they gave me a lot more information about this, but, I, but they would always talk about how, as a Christian, you're supposed to preach the gospel. Now, how many of you would agree with that? As a Christian, you're supposed to preach the gospel. See, I always thought, uh, I, I believed them, and I was like, okay, that's what I need to do, but I never really understood what the gospel was. Um, now, if, if you were just to take a random survey and ask somebody, uh, tell me, like, if I'm supposed to preach the gospel, don't you think you should know what the gospel is? Anybody agree with me on that one, huh? Now, if, if you were to ask somebody today, what is the gospel? And just ask any random Christian at any random church, what is the gospel? Um, what kind of answers do you think you'd get? Kind of a weird question, isn't it? It's like we should all know this, sort of. But most of us, and just curious, how many of you would well, don't show your hands. How many of you would say that without showing your hands? Um, I should rephrase that question. If you were to ask somebody what the gospel is, here's the answer I feel like many people would give you. They would tell you that the gospel is good news, that Jesus died on a cross for your sins, that he was the son of God, and that he rose from the dead to give you a new life. Now, does that sound pretty good to most of you? That if you trusted in him, you could have newness of life? I mean, that, that is sort of the, the core of the central message of most people who preach the gospel today. Those words that Jesus was the Son of God, He was the Messiah, He died on a cross to forgive you of your sins, and that He rose from the dead to give you new life. And if you'll trust in Him for, for the forgiveness of sins, you'll also be raised with Him one day, um, both physically and, and today, you could experience some of that resurrection life. Uh, problem with that version of the gospel. Hi there. Come on up. No, you're free. Uh, the problem with that version of the gospel is, is that what Jesus preached? Did he, when it says that he went out through all the Galilee and was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, did, was he just telling people that he was going to die on a cross for their sins and then rise from the dead to give them new life? Did that ever confuse any of you? Like the gospel that you've been told, like, okay, well, if Jesus went around preaching the gospel... What was it that he was actually saying? He was telling people he was going to die and rise? Now, When you look in the Gospels, you actually only see that a couple times, and he was telling the disciples when he was alone with them. Kind of weird, huh? Or if he told others, it would be in really cryptic ways, like uh, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Like, See how it's sort of cryptic? It's like this mysterious thing, and he was talking about his own death and resurrection, though nobody knew it. Now, what's the point of preaching the gospel in such a way that nobody's going to actually understand what you're saying? So, is that the good news he was preaching? Um, the word gospel, if you, if you read it in scriptures, it literally just means good news, right? So, what was the good news he was preaching about? Uh, Anglo-Saxons, the, the word, our English word, gospel, uh, first started when the Roman Empire began to convert the Anglo-Saxons. And so the word that they used, they were, they were coming up against these Druid priests and their gods, uh, and these Druids were, were reportedly showing miracles that that rivaled the power of the apostles, and so, except they would do it in the name of their gods. And they were, these gods were very capricious and required lots of sacrifice. And, and, and so uh, the missionaries that went to that part of England, they came up with this idea to instead of just calling God God or Dios, they, they would call him good as a way to counteract what the Druids and the gods they worshiped to, to sort of come in the face of those gods. And, and the word gospel literally comes from the word good spell. Did you know that? Our English word gospel comes from the word good spell. They would name him, they would, the, the, the God that the, the Roman Empire worshipped, the, the Catholic Church, they called that God Good. That was literally the title they would use. And so the, when they were sent as missionaries to this group of people, they were coming with the good news about the good spell or the God spell and how his spells were more powerful than the spells of these Druid priests. And that their God was not only, not only were his spells more powerful, but he was actually good in comparison to the gods of the Anglo-Saxons. And that's where we get the word gospel from good spell or God's spell. Interesting, isn't it? Um, I always, this, this idea that God's God, or Jesus would go around preaching this gospel, this good news. what was the actual good news? Because if it wasn't about his death and resurrection, what was it about? Now I, I have no, here, don't misunderstand me here. I, I definitely believe when you present the gospel to people with words that you, you're going to include information about Jesus in there. Everybody hear me on that? I'm not saying you forget that part. That is a pivotal part of the good news because it is also good news. Your sins can be wiped away. You can be set free from them. That there is a resurrection from the dead that, that even though we may fall asleep now, we will be raised up permanently in a newness of life, new bodies that are incorruptible. That's good news. So every dead relative we've ever had who's believed upon Jesus has that, that good news for us is that they will one day be raised again to newness of life. Um, but there's more good news than that. For that, I'm going to have to go into some history here. Let's, let's just do a, a full scope of the entirety of the scriptures. Sound good? We're going to do that all in 30 minutes or less. You ready for this? I'm going to hit you. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hose. Just do everything you can to keep your head on. <laughs> so here's a question for you. you. Ever find it weird that we all know that Jesus was the Son of God. We, we know that, that he um, moved in a crazy amount of power, that he was called um, the Savior of the world. But yet, during Jesus' days here on earth, he would call the enemy uh, the ruler of the world. Anybody find that strange? How about this? Even after that, he would call the enemy, or, or Jesus would die on a cross, right? He died for everybody's sins. He then would get raised from the dead, so he conquers death, and then he ascends up into heaven and takes a seat on a throne. Now, what does he, what does a person do on a throne? Yeah, they rule, right? That's a place of authority. He reigns as a king on a throne. Correct. And yet, in John, 1 John, John the Apostle will say that we know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Wait, hold on a second. I thought Jesus was on a throne, I thought he was ruling. And yet, John would still tell us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. How is it that that even happened? It's confusing right now, right? I'll make sense of it all really soon. When did that start? When did the enemy get his place of authority? Where was it? What did you say? Adam and Eve, the fall, right? We see this happening, right? God puts them in a garden. He tells them, you are now going to be my image bearers. You're made in my image. That means you're to conduct yourself in the way that I would and represent me here in this place. And then he gives them the mandate. Here's how you're going to do this. And he starts with having them name the animals. Anybody know what that means when you name an animal or name something? It meant, I have authority over you. I have the right to rule over you. And so the giving of a name in the ancient world meant that you were the one responsible for telling that thing what it is and what it can do. So Adam and Eve given the right to to rule over everything that moves on the earth. Well, you see one of the things moving on the earth was this thing called the serpent. serpent tempts them. And instead of being obedient to Christ, they obey the serpent. Now, in Romans 6.16, Paul will say this. He'll say that, Do you not know that he whom you obey, you are a slave to the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? So when Adam and Eve obeyed the serpent rather than God, what did they do? They sold themselves into slavery in that single moment. Now, how many of you know that if you have a, a child... If you're a slave and you have a child, what is that child? So the, the mother and father of all of mankind have children, and all of those children are sold into slavery. And from that day forward, all of mankind has been thrust under an evil dictator. The Bible calls him Satan or the accuser of the brethren. So God immediately enacts this plan. He tells uh, Adam and Eve, listen, this serpent will, bru- will bruise your heel, but you will crush its head. And then, and then he begins to, he never takes the mandate away. He still tells them, go and multiply, rule over everything, continue out the mandate I've given you, but now their nature is corrupt. Now they're, they're, the way that they're meant to rule over, and he makes provision for them, he offers a sacrifice saying this is just a, this is just a, a something, some blood has to be shed, but this is just a, a symbolic gesture of what really needs to happen. So fast forward through human history. Next thing you know, you've got um, God takes a guy named Abram. And what does he do? First thing he does with Abram when he calls him is he gives him a... In other words, what is God's intention by naming Abram Abraham? I'm picking one person out of all mankind to exert my authority over. So the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but suddenly Abram gets transferred over. Instead of him, his life being ruled over by by a foreign dictator God, the God of heaven is now going to rule over this one man and create a nation out of that one man. This nation, we're told in Isaiah, would be a light for the rest of the world. Now, how is it that that one nation would be a light for the whole world? What exactly is light supposed to do? When, when, In the New Testament, when, when Jesus says, nobody puts a light under a basket, right? Nobody does that. Why? Because nobody could see it, right? So a light is meant to shine something. It's meant to show something. In this case, God choosing one man to create a nation that's under his authority, under the, 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 the authority of heaven, he's showing the entire world what it looks like when he's reigning again. Now think about this. Under the, the nation of Israel, um, we see an episode happen when they get delivered from the Egyptians and the gods of the Egyptians. They get brought through the Red Sea. This is symbolic of what we just saw here, a baptism, a deliverance from the power of the enemy into the authority of God and his kingdom, right? So they passed through the Red Sea. We're told in, in 1 Corinthians 10 that this was a baptism. They were immersed in the sea. When they came out, they're now under the authority of God through Moses. And during the next, granted, they they did spend the next 40 years in the desert. But during that time in the desert, you know that none of their shoes wore thin. None of their clothes tattered. Tattered, tattered, tattered. Sorry about that. No holes. Okay. (laughs) Okay. There was no disease or sickness amongst them. Now think about this. This is an under an inferior covenant than what we are under today. And they saw all of those things. Now let, let me just backtrack here for a second. Let's talk about the results of that fall. When mankind sells themselves into slavery, what gets introduced to the world that day? Sin. But that's just one repercussion. There's a lot of other things that begin to happen. I mean, think about the state of the world right now, even. What are some of the things that, that you would say, well, these things are results of the fall and, and, and the results of an evil dictator. What are some of those things? We got sin. Give me some others. Sickness, Sickness and disease, right? See that? What else? Death. Good one. Natural disaster, What else? Poverty. immorality, immorality falling out under sin, right? So we see all these things. We've got uh, sin, sickness, death, uh, natural disaster, poverty, famine. How many of you would agree those are all things that are results of the fall and the results are, and, and they characterize, the, the, they're symptomatic of an evil dictator God ruling this world? Those are the results. But yet, when God starts reigning over Israel, there's no sickness amongst them. None of their clothes wear thin. They don't have to worry about famine because they get fed from miraculous quail and food that just suddenly appears in in the desert, water from a rock. Well, then what happens to this nation? Well, if they're meant to be a light for the whole world to see what it looks like when God is ruling again, but they start worshiping these evil dictator gods, what does God have to do? Can they continue being a light for the rest of the world? And see, this is what happens. Time and time again, God would come to them and saying, repent from the worship of these idols. Repent from following these foreign deities. Repent from sacrificing your children on the altars of these gods, these capricious, evil gods. And they wouldn't do it. And so God has to strike them down. He literally has to send them away into Babylon, and he has to come up with another plan. So literally what happens is you see this foreign kingdom come in, the Babylonians and Assyrians and Egyptians, and they just wipe out. They just decimate Israel. Matter of fact, uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, would take a select group of, of surviving Israelites, bring them over to Babylon, and you know what he does? Gives them new names. Think about it. He would bring over like the kings and the prophets. There was one guy named Daniel. Anybody know what the new name King Nebuchadnezzar gave to Daniel? Another thing they would do is they would make these, these uh, kings, when they would conquer them, they would literally prop them up and get, get them to kneel down, and the, king, the, the conquering king would put his feet on top of them. In other words, you're just a footstool for my feet. That's all you are. Around this time, uh, there's a prophecy that comes up where where God says, basically, I know that you guys are suffering. I know that this whole plan has gone completely awry. Don't worry, I've got a backup plan. And in Daniel 2.44, God's going to say these words. I think this is one of the most amazing uh, um, promises or prophecies that are given in the entirety of Scripture. He says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a new kingdom which will have no end. Now, think of every kingdom that's ever existed. Is there a single kingdom that didn't come to an end? I mean, even some of us now might be a little bit optimistic and say, well, our kingdom probably won't, right? The Americans, they're going to survive, right? But if there's no other earthly kingdom that's ever outlived human history. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up his own kingdom. This kingdom's going to put an end to every other kingdom of the earth, but it itself will endure forever. Now realize, this is the first time a message like this has ever been preached until John the Baptist. Now we're talking about a kingdom that comes from heaven, correct? Everybody hear that? Kingdom that comes from heaven. John the Baptist shows up and he starts preaching the good news about the kingdom. Where did this kingdom come from? It's called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He starts preaching good news saying, guess what? This kingdom is at hand. Now, did you know in the ancient world, anytime a, a, a king would enter into a foreign country before he goes in, he'd send send ahead a delegate to announce his arrival, and we see this happen today. Well, most of the time, when a when a like the you know America, or the president of the United States goes to a foreign land, he sends ahead information about his coming arrival. Back then, it was a much bigger deal. I heard that uh, when George W. Bush was, this is totally unrelated to the message, I just think it's kind of funny. When George W. Bush was uh, uh, president and, and he would go stay at a, a hotel and they would ask him, okay, what are the list of things that you need? And that's sort of customary. And, and the only thing he had on his list was Lone Star Beer and Bologna. Yeah. <laughs> president of the United States. Uh, <laughs> I just love that. It's just so simple. But okay, so so... God, kingdom of heaven is now invading earth. Before it comes, a delegate gets sent ahead to announce the arrival of this coming king of heaven. John the Baptist shows up, starts preparing. Now realize John the Baptist, greatest revivalist who'd ever lived at that time. People were coming from all over to be baptized. And, and so he was literally making a way, preparing the people for the coming of this new king. So they start repenting from their sins. They're getting washed as a cleansing from their sin. And he's preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. means it's so close you can actually touch it. Then Jesus shows up and starts preaching the same message. Now we're told about Jesus that he was God incarnate. That he was called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And here's the cool thing about when he starts preaching this message. What does he do as soon, or better yet, how did he preach this message? He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message that John is preaching, but he would always present this message a little bit differently. Think back on all the results of the fall. What, what did this world look characterized under? An, or what, what was it characterized by under an evil dictator God? Sin, sickness, natural disaster, famine, poverty. Jesus is now preaching about the coming kingdom, but then he starts presenting that kingdom, which means preaching cannot just exist with a word, it actually has to be demonstrated. So Jesus preaches the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then how does he respond to sickness? How did he respond to death? How did he respond to poverty? Now, many of you, you're not thinking about this one. A coin in the mouth of a fish. How did he respond to famine? How did he respond to natural disaster? Rebukes a storm. Everything that characterized this world and how it was symptomatic of the, the rule of an evil dictator, Jesus came directly against. And he started delivering people from the power of the enemy. Now, check this out. The word salvation in Scripture. Do you know the majority of the time that the word salvation just means being saved, right? Salvation, saved. Majority of the time that word is used throughout the gospel accounts. It has nothing to do with people's sin. Did you know that? Majority of the time, it's in reference to people being delivered from evil spirits. So you gotta start asking your question. When you preach about salvation, there's two things you need to think about. What are you being saved from? And what are you being saved for? So when Jesus when he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, this invading army that's coming in to undo the works of a foreign evil God, he's delivering people from the power of that God, saving them from something for something. Uh, let's, uh, let me, I haven't used my notes once. Let me just make this somewhat official on my notes here. I feel like I'm doing a good job with my notes. Um, Remember that that instance that happens where where Jesus is being tempted before he actually begins his public ministry. He gets taken into the wilderness for 40 days he's to fast. And during that t- that time of fasting, the devil comes to him with the temptation, three different temptations. First one is to turn um uh I guess it was a stone into bread, right? Is that what it was? Right? And he 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 Averts that one the next one is is I think this is the crazier one that I want to mention. It says that the devil took Jesus up on a very high hill and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, is there a hill anywhere near Israel where you can actually see all the kingdoms of the earth? No, okay, so this is a demonic vision taking place. He's being shown all the kingdoms of the earth, and the devil makes this offer he says. All of these kingdoms I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Now, was that offer superfluous? Was it empty? In other words, if the enemy was offering him all the kingdoms of the earth, what does that mean the enemy actually had? All the kingdoms of the earth. So when you think about the rulership of most kings of the earth, who do those kings belong to? What is their rule characterized by, and whose name are they representing? Whose image are they made in? A twisted image of a twisted God. So, and the crazy thing is, the devil's not making an an offer to Jesus that Jesus doesn't want. Because that's actually what he came for. He came to get back all the kingdoms of all the earth. But there's one little caveat, the enemy wants him to bow down and worship him. There's only one God that we are supposed to worship. So Jesus denies this offer and said, takes a route that's much, much harder involving his own death and resurrection. Um, and I love this because, so, so you see the scene play out, right? Where the next thing you know, Jesus is healing all the sick. He's, he's rebuking storms. He's feeding 5,000 from a few loaves of bread and some fish. Everything the devil came to do, Jesus begins to undo, describing what the, what, what the kingdom of invading kingdom should look like. So if God's kingdom really is really at hand, then that's what you should see happening. And then he, he gets his disciples, right? He pulls together a team of 12 dudes. Do you know the first thing he does when he gets them? Gives them new names. In other words, what what is he doing? You are now under my authority. Transferred over from the kingdom of darkness, now into the kingdom of God. You're now gonna be my representatives. And then when he gets them, he says, now I want you to go into these towns, and he sends them out in pairs. I want you to go into these towns and and preach the gospel. Now at this point in time, Was the gospel the good news about his death and resurrection or about something else? It was a good news about deliverance from the powers of darkness. And then he says, and when you say these words, heal the sick, deliver them from demons, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. Everything that I have demonstrated for you, now you go and do and push back the kingdom of darkness. So he gets these disciples, right? Disciple literally means student or pupil. So he makes these disciples. The the, the, the very thing that Jesus was supposed to do is exactly what the disciples would go on to do. Now you see this, uh, another great scene play out where Jesus is walking on water. There's a big squall. There's waves coming in and he's walking from the shore over by the boat. It says that he had actually intended to pass them by. But they see him walking on the water. Now, Peter says, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come out on the water. Now, why would Peter do this? You see, here's the thing. Little th- most of us don't know this about a disciple. But if you really were the disciple of a particular rabbi or teacher, you didn't just know what that rabbi knew. It wasn't a collection of facts and information. That wasn't enough. You were actually supposed to do what the rabbi did. Matter of fact, some pupils, some disciples were so intent on doing everything the way the rabbi did it that some rabbis couldn't even go to the bathroom without being observed by their disciples. That's true. So so think about this. Peter sees Jesus walking on water. He says to him, if that's really you, Lord, then tell me to come out on the water. Because if you are my rabbi then that means I'm supposed to do whatever it is you do. Jesus walked on water, what does the disciple get to do? Question for you. Are you one of his disciples? Then how is it that you can present the gospel any differently than how they did? Um. A couple, I'm just going to read some, some random verses. Luke, I didn't give you these. Sorry, buddy. I just, I've got I've to read this because this is just too crazy. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 4.20. This is Paul speaking. He says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk. So if you're preaching a message of good news about the kingdom of God, it cannot consist in just words, can it? says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, he says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Wait, wait. So how did Paul present his gospel? Was it with a really eloquent sermon or with a demonstration of power? In other words, when you share the gospel, yeah, I've heard this said in my evangelical circles, that, um, and I can't remember who they were quoting, but it's necessary to share the gospel, and sometimes we do that with words. Now, they would say that with the implied message that you should be loving and serving one another. But I'm here to tell you that is not the way you present the gospel according to the Bible. When you present the gospel, sometimes with words, it's because you've already demonstrated what that good news was. The good news is that sickness you're dealing with, it's already been paid for. Let me show you. God's kingdom has come to rule. Let me show you how he's setting you free from the symptoms of the power of the enemy. Let me show you the good spell, God's spell, which is more powerful than the, the spells of this world. So he sends the disciples out. Look at this. This is uh, Romans 15. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go through a list of scriptures real quick and just follow through with me. Romans 15, verse 18 through 19. He says, I will not presume to speak of anything. Accept what Christ has accomplished through me. Now, what what is he about to tell stories of? Resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem around as far as I don't know how to pronounce that city, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. How did he fully preach the gospel of Christ? with demonstrations of power, signs, and wonders. 2 Corinthians 12.12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. One of the things that just kills me here is when people tell you that the signs and wonders and miracles is just people telling you about the death and resurrection. That's a cheapening of the currency, It's like when someone tells you that the gift of tongues means you have an aptitude to learn foreign language. Are you kidding me? Is that what the gift of tongues is? An aptitude to learn languages? Or when they'll tell you that prophetic utterance means uh, preaching of the gospel. No, that's not what prophetic utterance means. There's actually a Greek word for, for prophecy and there's a Greek word for Preaching, do you know what it is? Preaching. 1 Thessalonians 1:5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So here's the question: What is it that we're supposed to preach? You go through the book of Acts and you actually read what they preached, it's not not only that Jesus died on a cross for your sins and raised you from the dead. It's about the invading kingdom of heaven and how he's tearing apart the kingdom of darkness. And it's sometimes with words, but it has to come with demonstration of power. Now, I, I love the very end of Romans because... Uh, Paul's going to say these beautiful words. May the God of heaven soon crush Satan under your feet. See, we tend to think that this power is for these super apostles. But when one of those super apostles talked to the church, who, said, who did he tell, who, who was he speaking to when he said, crush Satan under your feet? Every person who would read the letter to the Romans. You see, it's not enough for the person with a microphone to demonstrate the works of God. We're responsible to preach the gospel. And that looks like a demonstration of that gospel being advanced. The good news is you no longer have to live under the power of a foreign evil dictator. The good news is is that his kingdom is now making its advance, pushing back the powers of darkness, healing you of your sickness, setting you free from your sin. Not just forgiving you of it, but setting you free from it. Every addiction, everything that's held you in bondage, God is breaking those chains. You now have power to to rebuke the storms that come to steal people's lives. You can now feed and multiply food, for, for, to feed nations. I remember one of the very first times, well, one of, the, one of the early times when I saw a tongue and interpretation, I had a young kid who, uh, I mean, he, he didn't know anything. And he comes to me, says, would you pray for me that God would give me the gift of interpretation? I think this is one of the most negle- neglected gifts in the church, interpretation of tongues. And so I prayed for him Now, if you pray for somebody to be given a gift, the only way you're going to know if they got that gift is to actually try it out, right? And and how many of you know there's no such thing as an interpretation unless there's somebody speaking in tongues? So you actually have to speak in tongues for somebody to get the interpretation. One gift requires the other. So I I prayed for him, for God to give him an an interpretation of tongues. And then I spoke in tongues over him. Do you know what this 15-year-old boy said? Here's what he he, he heard, the interpretation. He got an interpretation. I walked across the sea. You will walk across oceans. I fed 5,000. You will feed the nations. Any of you know 15-year-old kids that can make up stuff like that on the spot? I, I love that. You know, when, when Jesus said greater works you will do, he wasn't just referring to the apostles. We've been called into this, like this is this holy mandate. Um, one of my, my favorite passages of scripture comes from Psalm 110 where he says, um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Remember what I told you about the ancient world? When a new king would conquer a a foreign army, he would take their king, make him a footstool, and prop his feet up on top of him. God has intentions to do that with the gods of this world, to make them a footstool under his feet. Some of the gods of this world, they're creating things like cancer, autoimmune diseases, I mean, you you name every bad thing that exists in this world and there is a God that goes behind that to create it. And those are the kind of things that we as believers are making a footstool under our feet. Do you know how I know that it wasn't just for God to do this? Because when you read two verses later in Psalm 110, he says, and in the day of your power, your people will volunteer freely. You have this unique opportunity to present the gospel and use words if necessary, but through demonstration of power. And these works aren't gonna work themselves. See, God doesn't need us, but he's chosen to use us. We are the ones he's chosen to demonstrate his works on the earth. And as a matter of fact, I would tell you this, he says that he's prepared good works for you beforehand. I'd be willing to say that he's prepared more works for you than you'll ever possibly fulfill. Um, we've been doing this whole series on, on the gifts of the Spirit, and, and I think this is just a caveat for me, because I, I want you to know this isn't for the person up in the front. Now, I, I've been my prayer going into this week, and my prayer often, but when I come here to Upper Room Frisco, is, God, I want you to demonstrate through me what you want to demonstrate through them. All of this stuff is for us. This is your inheritance to be God's image bearers, to represent him on this earth. And so every obstacle, everything that won't bend the knee to King Jesus is yours to enforce.